We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell, a double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy weekend to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Lucky to be there and lucky once again. We're working today with the returned from vacation tall guy, Nathan. We like to call him Nathan Detroit. Good morning and afternoon (laughs) to you, Gary and Suzanne. It's great to be back. What a... Bit of a short-term vacation, but man, lots of stories. And was it cold where you were? Uh, Not as bad as in the Chicago area. I was looking at the forecast and scrolling over to my brother's town and went past Chicago and noticed that they were getting into negative like two degrees overnight. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. Where my brother lives in in the Cincinnati area, it got Uh maybe about low 20s, maybe upper 10s, but uh, still enough to pack a heavy coat. Okay. Were you there in time to be cheering on the Bengals? Yes, and then tears of sadness flowing down afterwards. Yeah. That's the emerging great rivalry between quarterbacks and franchises. There are whole eras, those of us who remember the great battles between the Steelers and the Raiders, for example, or the Cowboys and anybody, Mm -hmm. there you have all of these these rivalries. And this is the one that's shaping up to be classic. And you got to include Buffalo in the mix somewhere. They're going to be in the Super Bowl again one of these days, I'm sure. Absolutely, because the Cincinnati Bengals have always been a bottom feeder type team, just staying at the bottom of their division. But in the past couple of years, they just really, you know, got good talent and became a strong, solid team. And are contenders each and every year. So Casey and Philly, we'll see what happens with those two. But one thing about Manson Mitchell, when we choose our guests, we are not bottom feeders. No, top feeder, top shelf. Top shelf all the way. And we have one such lady with us who's been on our show several times already. Six times already. This is is time number seven. There you go. She started with us about, about 10, 10, 11 years ago. And with a new book. And this one... It's a mind blower. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To her name is least. Kathleen Martin, and I think you, Suzanne, have some good things to say about her. I do. I <laughs> do. Kathleen Martin is an author, on-camera expert, consultant, international conference presenter, experiencer advocate, intergenerational experiencer, and hypnosis practitioner. Since 1990, she has researched the perplexing nature of UFOs and the non-human entities associated with highly advanced aerial vehicles via her own groundbreaking research, investigation, and experimentation. She is the 2021 recipient of the International UFO Congress Lifetime Achievement Award. Kathleen's amazing story as the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, the first scientifically investigated case of alien abduction, sent her on a lifelong search for the answers. Not only has she explored her own paranormal experiences, but she has also talked to thousands of UFO contact experiencers, worked on three major studies with them, 
and became an advocate for these much ridiculed people. Her journey has taken her deep into archival research and experimentation. Most fascinating, she and a team of researchers entered into a multi-year experiment to seek the answers to their many questions on why extraterrestrials are visiting our planet. That is the subject of our talk today. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, Kathleen Martin. Very happy to have you here today with us. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be with you again. You know, Kathleen, I do need to particularly congratulate you for winning this award from the UFO Congress. It seems like it's it's a body of work which indicates a lifelong commitment, certainly in your adult life as a researcher and author, to be able to put yourself out there and your findings, your speculations, perhaps your hypotheses, and to subject them to scrutiny worldwide. It's where we met her for the first time. You right there in Arizona. Congress, right in Scottsdale. Scottsdale. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and uh, that's what I have done. I have been... Uh, seriously studying all of this, doing this research and investigation and experimentation uh, since really 1990, right around that time frame is when I began. You know, I was a teacher. I was an education services coordinator, a social worker prior to that. But uh, I decided that to follow my bliss and uh, do what I really wanted to do, and that was to find the answers on uh, why extraterrestrials are here and why they are uh, contacting human beings, including my family. You got a lot of those questions answered, and that was the first thing I was going to say to you. We have known you since uh, that that first UFO Congress in Scottsdale, and you started coming on our show, I believe, right around 2011, with your book Captured, written with Stanton Friedman, where you talked about all the research and study that went into, it, it's probably like the most studied abduction case, you know, lots of government officials involved, just lots of details, uh, circles on the car, things happening with the clothing. And when I read your most recent book, your 2022 book, Forbidden Knowledge, all of a sudden, this idea of intergenerational contact came to light. Those two were not the only two in your family to have that experience. So tell us a little bit about the other members of your family, including yourself. Well, for a very long time, I thought that, you know, this was focused on Betty and Barney, but Betty was conducting uh, experiments with scientists to try to call in UFOs, and one landed on my grandparents' farm, and uh, what we never made public, although it was investigated confidentially, by Dr. James Harder back in the 1970s was um, the landing of a craft on my grandparents' farm observed by two witnesses and my and my mother's memories of being taken to craft that night. 
There were also other experiences that I remember. For example, my mother went grocery shopping uh, every Friday night. She had a routine that she followed. She would leave in the same time frame. My father would take care of the, the three children in the family. And she would do her shopping. And then she would arrive home at about the same time, about 9 o'clock in the evening with the groceries. So on this particular night, she didn't arrive home. And it... Uh, she was an hour late. She was two hours late. Uh, my father was very concerned. Uh, we couldn't fall asleep, although he'd sent us to bed. And what had happened to my mother? Finally, she arrived home. And she didn't realize that she was late. The groceries were in the car. They carried them in. And it was summertime. The ice cream was soup. The frozen food was melted. She had no explanation for what had happened. As far as she knew, it was about nine o'clock, two hours missing time, no idea what had happened. She didn't recall observing the UFO that night, but it always remained very perplexing to the family and to her, of course. So these things were happening. Yes. <clears throat> and in your own first, the first encounter that you can recollect, Kathleen, there, tell us, please, what happened to you that you can recall? And how did you cope with that psychologically? What I remembered was uh, finding myself on craft, on a table. My mother was there as well. And when I woke up the following morning, there was physical evidence on my body. Something had happened to me. I had these memories of lying on a table, of having these entities standing around me on the table. And I could not for years remember their faces. It was like a, I had a, a mental block against that memory. But I know that my mother was there. And the following morning when I went out to the breakfast table, I went to sit down on the chair and I could not sit. I had so much pain in that area of my body. And my mother just said, oh, well, get a pillow, rather nonchalantly, uh, without sp speaking of what happened the previous evening. I mean, this was not something that had ever happened before. But there I was with this intense pain and the sense that I had undergone some kind of surgical procedure. You know, the way that I coped with that was to try to tell myself that I had needed surgery. I began to uh, feel intense mistrust for my mother, uh, telling myself that she had arranged for a surgical team to come into my home in the middle of the night to do surgery on me 
uh, because uh, she didn't want me to know that I had to undergo a surgical procedure. Now, of course, that didn't make sense at all. You don't have a surgical team go to your house to do surgery in the middle of the night. You go to the hospital to have surgery done. And and there are procedures and tests. So, you know, as a child, that was my way of processing what I couldn't explain. And unfortunately, it destroyed my relationship with my mother, my trust in my mother for a number of years until uh, she and I finally uh, spoke to each other about it. And she told me, yes, I remember that as well. But I didn't want to upset you because I didn't uh, know how much you remembered. And so we finally uh, talked about it later on and and realize that yes both of us were taken and that wasn't the only time that the two of us were taken Kathleen you've talked to literally thousands of experiencers in um, the work that you have done over many many years and is it typical that abductees will have their memories blocked or erased or something will happen where they really don't remember except perhaps under hypnosis? Well, what I have discovered is that the majority of experiencers uh, recall having a close encounter with a UFO at less than 500 feet and their family members do as well. And they remember parts of being on craft or parts of having a non-human entity come into their environment. They remember lights. They have certain phenomena that they recall. But these are uh, not complete memories of being taken to craft, undergoing the entire scenario that occurs on a craft and then being returned. Some people remember all of it, but very few recall all of it without hypnosis. And I think that's because your subconscious mind, which is really the telltale instrument, it seems to me, because the subconscious mind, as I understand it, forgets nothing. And so there's going to be that intra-psychic pressure, because even though someone might put a screen or a block in front of your conscious mind, it's pretty tough to do that with the subconscious because it knows what the person or the body has gone through. That is correct. And hypnosis accesses that subconscious mind. You move from left brain into light to the right brain where you can access this information that was uh, not available to you uh, when you were not in a hypnotic state. Having worked with so many experiencers for so long, my impression from reading your book is that you were uh, approaching it from the time that this first entered your family in the 1960s with a rigorous left brain, scientifically minded approach. And at some point, you met 
at least one person that you got together with, and then it turned out to be a group of four. And this is one of the primary things in your book, Forbidden Knowledge, is your shift going from uh, quite a skeptical researcher, not a debunker, but skeptical, questioning absolutely everything, looking at it and saying, does this make sense from a scientific analytical point of view, to moving to looking at the role of the right brain and intuition. So before we get into the meat of the potato here, um, you know, tell us about how this group came together and, and the experimentation that you, you decided to do. Yes. Uh, well, I've always been, as you said, skeptical, even of my own experiences and uh, scientific in my approach. And then I met uh, Dr. Melanie Barton Bragg, and she is a psychotherapist, and uh, she's also a minister. She has a doctorate in, in, in uh, religion. Divinity. Right. And so... Uh, I met her and Denise Stoner and I had worked together for many years as part of the Mutual UFO Network. I was their director of the Experiencer Research Team and she was my personal assistant. Uh, and then also Kevin Briggs came into the mix and Melanie and Denise met him uh, in Orlando at the Mutual UFO Network's International Symposium. I didn't meet him because I was a speaker that year and I had a vendor table and I was just really tied up working at the symposium. So Melanie, Denise and Kevin and I ended up getting together because they wanted me to meet Kevin, particularly Melanie, and I wanted Denise to be there. And so uh, we met a few times for lunch, and then uh, the conversation became so lively that I invited everyone to my home. And when they were at my home speaking, uh, Kevin started to channel information. He had never channeled before. He didn't wasn't even aware that this was occurring. But Melanie and Denise recognized this. And as a result of this, uh, Melanie worked with Kevin, and we were invited to take part in an experiment. And that experiment was to uh, observe Kevin uh, interacting with these non-human entities who call themselves a council of extraterrestrials. And Denise and I, being left-brained and very uh, scientific in our approach as investigators, uh, insisted that if we took part in this experiment, we were going to look for evidence. And so uh, we took equipment with us. We recorded all of the statements. I transcribed all of the, the statements. We were invited to ask questions. We met once a month for a period 
of two years. We expanded the size of the group after one year in inviting skeptics into the group as well. And uh, we still do meet occasionally, maybe two or three times a year. Uh, it was quite uh, an interesting experiment because we were able to collect scientific evidence that something unusual was occurring. And we could feel a strong tingling sensation in our bodies as the temperature in the part of the room where these or this particular entity was standing increased by we've measured up to a 10 degree increase in that area of the room when these entities entered. So uh, you know, we had scientific evidence, but also the getting into the right brain of learning to communicate with these entities ourselves. Uh, they wanted to meet us and we agreed. And when they came into the environment for, you know, let me just give you a personal example. Um, a scientist, a gray scientist, uh, came into my environment and I communicated with him telepathically. I asked questions. Uh, I had this written down. I wrote the answers down as well. And it's a good thing I did, because when he left, I remembered what had occurred. I could not remember what was said, what information was communicated. My husband was right next to me. I was sitting next to him. He knew this had happened as well. And fortunately, I had written the communication that we had. Um, so that gives me a little bit of insight maybe into why we forget what happened on board the craft or have only spotty memories of it. Um, I'm not certain what it is, if it's the, the electromagnetic field or what, but uh, it was very interesting to be able to uh, carry out this communication directly with this non-human who, you know, and sometimes I could see like a little shimmering presence. Sometimes I'd see a little shadow, um, but I'd always feel that intense electrical tingling in my body. In the second half of our interview today, we're going to get into some of the questions that your group of four asked because they are questions I think just about everybody would like to ask and get the answers to. And you got some answers which are are just amazing, fascinating, mind-blowing answers. And I want to get into some of the specifics about that. Uh, one of the questions that got asked um, I want to get to before we take the break. And the thing that, that I found very curious was that there are these intergenerational experiencers, but 
the question was asked if they were chosen in some way. And I found the answer to be fascinating that people were actually chosen randomly based more on the fact that they were reachable, perhaps alone, the way Betty and Barney Hill were traveling and going over the mountains alone in their car. So do I have that right? They said that this is how they began their process originally. Yes, you have that part right. But then when these ETs found what they were looking for, they began to take people along uh, family intergenerational lines. And so why did they do this? What were they looking for? They wanted to move humans ahead uh, on an evolutionary scale. They, for the survival of our planet, they said. And by taking people along family lines and tweaking us, tweaking our DNA, working with us intergenerationally, then they were able to see positive changes from generation to generation. I love that. I love that. We're going to get into more specifics after the break. Yes, we are. And uh, do any of you out there think it's getting a little weird yet? (laughs) And yet we're (laughs) going to talk about something that is compelling to consider for cosmic implications. That's a lot to ask of weekend radio, but here we are. Fascinating stuff. The book is Forbidden Knowledge, A Personal Journey from Alien Abduction to Spiritual Transformation. The author is our friend, Kathleen Marden. She has so much more to say. We'll try to pack in as much as we can in the second half hour of our show. In the meantime, our one and only break will be gone for a couple of minutes and then more of Kathleen Marden and her amazing story. This is AM 1150 in Seattle. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. 
WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Catherine Alice for her pre-Valentine's visit with tips on how love will find you. On Saturday, Mark Anthony, psychic explorer and author of The Afterlife Frequency and Other Works, makes a compelling case for the survival of consciousness after death. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, local talk for the body, mind, and soul. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Kathleen Marden. Kathleen is known to Manson Mitchell listeners as the author of Captured, along with Stanton Friedman. But Kathleen, you have written other books and you are involved in other things. So please let our listeners know how they can reach you, what your website is, and anything else that you would like to share right now. Well, my website is Kathleen with a K dash or hyphen Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. You can purchase autographed copies of my books there. They're also available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I've written six books and uh, you can also see where I'll be speaking this year. And there are some free articles on my web page too. You can uh, contact me there and I also do consultations so if you wanted to speak to me about your own experiences we could do that excellent thank you very much kathleen-marden.com I wanted to uh, read a page from your book if you don't mind and then right uh, ahead. follow up with something on that Kevin Briggs is the gentleman who does the channeling for these entities. And so I'm I'm looking on page 110 and 111 here. Kevin informs us of recent developments on planet Earth that have brought a sense of urgency to this council of extraterrestrials. They show him a matrix of hexagonal shapes in the form of a dome and advise him that the matrix is manifested by consciousness itself. They teach him that we live in a holographic universe, which is a projection of pure energy. The matrix has allowed us to generate the world we live in. As symbiotic beings, they say we are capable of creating by thought. Our brain creates and projects a symbiosis of consciousness and the physical. We're in a sea of energy within consciousness itself, and consciousness is the universe's life force. This is a bit of a mind-boggling concept, but you will learn more as you read on. And the council advises Kevin that everything we create has a vibrational frequency. What we all perceive as a solid object is a combination of vibrational frequency and locality in space-time. The object we create is only energy by which we project thought. The council teaches Kevin a basic understanding of the theory of everything, an ultimate theory that explains and links together all physical aspects of the universe. They advise him that our scientific understanding of this theory is basically correct, except 
for the measurement problem. The current equation does not include a calculation for consciousness. Well, that exploded my consciousness when I read that. <laughs> and then later you talk about what consciousness is. And just say a little bit more about consciousness and, and physical, you know, the components of life itself, because this is one of the things that the four of you learned when you were together. And, and a lot of this gets into uh, quantum physics, and uh, there are scientists who are working on this now, uh, developing uh, theories of consciousness. But uh, essentially, the Council of Eight told us that uh, there is one source consciousness that we all share, and there is one creator who is at the top of this this consciousness, and that uh, everything that is, uh, and it's really it's so difficult for me to actually um, explain this, but let me give you some examples from scientific experiments on consciousness, uh, because that's a way that I can explain it. And I've tried these myself. But one scientific experiment was uh, conducted with plants. And so uh, plants were placed in one room. Uh, and in that room, beautiful music uh, was, was played. And uh, people would go into that room and would project love, such loving feelings toward that plant talking to the plant, saying how beautiful it is. In another room, the same plants with the same amount of light and the same amount of water were placed. And there was loud, angry music played in that room. And humans would go into that room and they would uh, say terrible things to the plants. Uh, how ugly they were, how they wished they were dead, and that sort of thing. And the plants who had love projected toward them grew and thrived and were beautiful, and the other plants withered and died. This, is, this same kind of experiment has been done on human cells, on cancer cells, um, where the mind, the consciousness, has been projected to kill cells. The same kind of thought experiment or consciousness experiment uh, was done by children in India. And uh, they all got together and they meditated to try to reduce crime. And it worked. Uh, there, are, there have been many, many experiments done um, to attempt to uh, change uh, the outcome of what is occurring, including stopping wars, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so we know that consciousness can manifest in certain ways and that we all have this consciousness. I think of a collective consciousness in uh, around our planet. Uh, 
And when there is much uh, anger, much uh, negative thought in the human collective consciousness, uh, there is more crime, more anger, more killing, more disease on our planet. And so I think that it's extraordinarily important for all of us to attempt to manifest positive consciousness for our collective consciousness to improve the conditions on our planet. And that might sound kind of woo-woo, but it's scientifically based. I'm glad to hear you say it's scientifically based. We have talked to several people on our show about the process of manifesting. And it it what always comes up with the process of manis, manifesting is vibration and frequency. And so once again, this comes up strongly in your book that people vibrate at a certain frequency that all of our physical objects are vibrating at a certain frequency and our consciousness is all about and our planet is all about vibrating at a certain frequency and so those frequencies are, are will determine what it is that we are creating in the physical and interesting you know with the plants that you're going to have a frequency which is uh, very negative and create something very negative in the physical. And you're going to have frequencies which are extremely positive. And those positive frequencies are also going to manifest in the physical. And, and one of the things that I found especially interesting was the idea of 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 energy, the total amount of energy having three components, three component parts, the consciousness, the physical, and the spiritual. And yes. that again is another frequency. The the spiritual frequency of where we are spiritually, and we're not talking religion, we're talking the spirituality of everything being one. But that spirituality is a very important part. And it and it was for you in expanding your own personal consciousness from primarily left brain to both left brain and right brain, adding intuition and telepathy for the first time as an adult. Absolutely. And and it was not easy for me because I had lived so many years in my left brain, working with Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist, um, valuing that uh, Newtonian physics and it was really difficult for me to be able to to let go and to move more toward that right brain in order to be able to do an investigation of uh, all of these things that you mentioned to determine whether or not they were even real. And then 
I was able to experience it myself. You know, a lot of those things you can't measure. You can only experience them. And uh, I, you know, I'm just a curious person. And so I wanted to know, is this even possible? Uh, is it possible to communicate with uh, non-humans? Is it possible to manifest uh, anything through thought? And so uh, it was a fascinating experiment. I've written about it in, in great detail in the book. Let me tell you, Kathleen, about what I found disconcerting in some of the communications you received. It seems like this council is very forthright, which is much to their credit. What I found troubling was that when I hear about how they want to, to use your phrase, tweak our DNA, they want to do it for the good of the planet. They want to keep us from blowing ourselves up or allowing our climate to go to hell so uh, in, in such an accelerated way that future generations are going to have to invent new ways to live, just to physically survive. And then, and this kept coming back to me as we went through your book, there is at least one race who has the attitude, look, we're here, we take what we want, we don't care about the federation or the city council or whoever has their rules, we want what we want, and that's how it goes with us. And what I found so disconcerting is that that crowd acts a hell of a lot like humans. <laughs> you look at the way we act on this planet. I would hope that cosmically way out there in those distant reaches of outer space, they would have figured that out by now. Don't act like us. I know. I, you know, and that's the most perplexing thing to me. Are these other races who uh, harm humans uh, and who seem to be functioning at a lower vibrational uh, frequency, are they actually extraterrestrials? Uh, we think that they are. Many of us think that they are. Yet, uh, I also did experiments to try to determine <laughs> what they are, and I went a little too far. And I've come to believe that many of those highly negative entities are probably not extraterrestrials at all. I suspect that they've always been here, that they just uh, are entities that are vibrating at a lower frequency. Uh, maybe they're left over from uh, possibly other uh, human races that were uh, on this planet who did become extinct? Uh, I don't know, but uh, maybe even a, a reptilian type of race uh, going back millions of years into our history. That's all speculation, of course, but uh, could it be? All I know is that as I was uh, doing experimentation into all of this, I was working with an experiencer who was having highly negative contact with reptilian type entities who had tails, who were shapeshifters. They were not behaving like scientists or physicians or educators. They were harming these humans. 
And I had the misfortune of having one of them attach to me. And it changed me overnight. I mean, immediately. When it attached to me, I felt like a dark cloud had descended on me. And I normally slept well. Suddenly, I was having difficulty sleeping. Uh, I normally had a really great, uh, happy mood. And all of a sudden, I felt depressed. I uh, am generally in very good health. And all of a sudden, my body started to hurt. I was having all these problems, and I finally realized what had happened to me and knew that I had to have that detached. And who detached that for me? But the Council of Eight. That council who said that they would protect me. So I was really pleased that that had happened, but it gave me insight that they didn't take me to craft. Um, I uh, was not part of some kind of uh, medical experiment or, or program. Uh, this lower vibrating force had suddenly overtook me. And then when it was removed, it was removed immediately, and I was back to being my usual self. Wow. <clears throat> this Council of Eight is made up of a variety of what we call extraterrestrials from different places. And at least two of them say they are from the fifth dimension. And I wanted to read one of the questions that your group of four asked, and then the answer to the question. And the question was, I would like one of the two people who lives in the fifth dimension to describe what the fifth dimension is like to reside in. What physical rules are different than ours as far as existing in that plane? Is there an atmosphere? Can it be felt? For example, some areas of our earth are humid and make our skin moist. Others are dry and we get thirsty, needing to drink more. We can touch clouds on mountaintops and high altitudes. Can you reside comfortably in our atmosphere and under planet Earth's living conditions? And here was the answer that was given from one of the people in that dimension. The fifth dimension is not greatly different than where you exist right now. Again, we exist at a higher frequency, a higher resonance in a higher level of consciousness that gives us that dimension. You as a species have not raised your consciousness to that level yet. We have clouds, we have rocks, we have a planet like yours that we live on. We abide by the same rules of the universe and physics the reason you do not see us is because your physical is not adapted to see into the fifth dimension, although you can travel to the fifth dimension using consciousness. When you understand consciousness, spirituality, the physical, and the combination of the three, then your level of consciousness will increase. You are no different than us, only 
are just a little bit further behind in your education and understanding, but you will get there. That is one of those questions that I was amazingly intrigued by because in prior conversations, including one with Stanton Friedman, we we talk about how in the United States, we went from Kitty Hawk to the moon within a hundred year period. And then the question becomes, well, what if some, what if another alien race is not a hundred years ahead of us, but maybe a thousand years ahead of us or 10,000 years ahead of us or a hundred thousand years ahead of us. So I thought the answer was particularly interesting saying, we're just like you, we're just a little further along than you are. And and yes. so that that made me feel good. You know, it's like there's something for us to work toward, especially when and I and I believe it was this particular um couple of people who said that where they are in the fifth dimension, there is no war. There is no greed. And 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 then I went, "Oh my gosh. I mean, that's where we want to be, isn't it?" <laughs> It is. But, you know, it sounds like the benevolent space brothers and sisters from the early 50s. And when you look into that history, you find out that Kevin Briggs, who was the channeler, uh, had been having these entities appear uh, to him from the time he was eight years old. And when he was uh, a teenager paper boy, he was taken to craft for the first time, uh, that sort of thing. But these entities, everyone on the Council of Eight, not just Orton D, those fifth dimensionals, uh, are benevolent. They don't they, they're not involved in the human experiments or um, the taking of DNA and that sort of thing. And uh, it makes perfect sense to me what Ort and D are saying that, you know, they, they just uh, live in a frequency a little bit higher than our own frequency, a little bit of ahead of us. And back in the 1950s, those benevolent human-looking or nearly human-looking uh, entities were offering to assist us. Well, Orton D are saying, um, we planted your seed here on this planet, and we come back from time to time to assist in your development. And that's what we're here for at the present time. Was that presaged by a gentleman? I think I have the name right when I say George Adamson from the 50s, this concept of the Space Brothers, and they really are benevolent and they want to help us. Yes, so that was George Adamski. Adamski, and thank then, you. then there were many others, and uh, their claims were simply dismissed as being fraudulent. And uh, I, I have looked into that. I've, I've written uh, a, a chapter in, a, in another book about this. But uh, that group in the, uh, of experiencers of contact in the early 50s were being told that we should be communists. And I think that that's the reason <laughs> that it was just so heartily dismissed by, by any federal 
uh, agents who, who looked into this because it was the antithesis of what was being promoted in this country. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, that was seen as something I think was very frightening to our, the U.S. government. The CIA should have said, if you guys are so big on communism, why don't you abduct Khrushchev? I know that would have been a great idea, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Why does he keep pounding a shoe? (laughs) You have to be of a certain age to get this joke, folks. (laughs) In our waning moments here, I did want to ask, within the UFO, UAP community, researching uh, extraterrestrials, within that whole community, it burgeons around the world by generations. When a book like this, and again, the book is Forbidden Knowledge, A Personal Journey from Alien Abduction to Spiritual Transformation. Very quickly, I can imagine people saying, oh, thank God you came. It must be such a relief to you. Now we can discuss this openly. And at the far end of that spectrum, you have people saying, you know, I always liked Kathleen, but that's what happens with some of these people. They just go around the bend. You know, I think that what's happened, and, and I'm not the first, and some of them, some, a lot of people never have disclosed this. Some of the, the high, very prominent historical researchers who uh, just didn't disclose it. I thought I would never disclose it myself, but then I thought, oh, why not? Maybe it will help somebody. But you get to a point, you know, you, is this real? Is this real? What is the evidence? After you've uh, interviewed thousands of experiencers, you have all the physical evidence you could ever want, including videos of these non-humans coming into the human environment. Then what's next? Have you reached the end of the rope? Are you going to continue to do the same thing that you've been doing for years over and over again? Or are you going to look beyond that? Are you going to explore further? Are you going to look for answers? I'm incredibly curious, and I did not want to leave this lifetime without uh, searching for the answers on why they are here and what they have to say about it. I, I was already aware that um, for throughout the history of UFO abduction, uh, experiencers have been uh, shown screens or or visuals of destruction of our planet, both environmental and through nuclear war. Let's talk about that next time. We have to go, Kathleen Martin, but that's where we'll pick it up next time you visit Manson Mitchell. (laughs) Sounds like a great idea. Great to be with you again. And great to have you here. Join us next Friday. We will do this all over again next weekend. In the meantime, have great days ahead. Enjoy your weekend.